We'll try that. There we go. It was already unmuted. And then I muted it. <laughs> muted is a funny word. All right. Snam. Chapter 1. Verses 2 to 15 says this. Oh, that's so much better. <clears throat> the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will be by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. And the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. And the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like Drunkards are as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, full, fully dry. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, 
Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to ask you a question. What is God like? I think it's a very important question to ask. I think it's actually probably the greatest question to ask. Because a lot of it judges, how you answer that question judges a lot about who you are and what you do and all of those things. So let me ask you, what is God like? Where do you get that perspective of who God is? How do you know that how you view who God is is right? And as I said, I think that this is probably the greatest question in our history because what you do with this really shows a lot about who you are. And most importantly, a lot about whose you are. So think about it. It really judges everything, right? And I remember growing up uh, not too long ago, I think it might have been around high school time, um, there was this, uh, t-shirts or hats or anything like this. There's even a little figurine that you can get, and I can picture it right now in my mind of Jesus kind of like doing his thumbs up like this with a smirk. Some of you have seen it, right? And it says, Jesus is my homeboy. And I, I think I even had one of those shirts because uh, I thought it was funny at the time. I had a shirt. It was awesome. It said, Jesus saves, and it was Jesus as a goalie. But... I thought it was true, I, but it, anyways, someone didn't like it, so I stopped wearing it. But here's the thing. If I only think of God as my homeboy or a friend, is that same God going to be the one who judges you? We have a hard enough time with our friends being face-to-face and calling us out, let alone the creator of this universe. But on the flip side of that, if I only think of God as vindictive, and this is where I struggle personally, because I struggle with legalism. Personally, that's my thing. If I do these things, therefore God will be pleased with me and I'm good to go. Right? For those of us who kind of maybe grew up in the church, we struggle with that a lot. I do myself. And think of God as kind of like this vindictive guy who kind of just wants to hurt me all the time if I do something bad. And if I think about that, then I don't think that God is compassionate. Or as Nahum says, the Lord is good. If he is transcendence, if he is someone who is up there and not with me, then how can I have comfort during the times that are hard? So again, the question still is, is what is God like? And, and how do you know that? Because I think a lot of us get our theology of who God is from Facebook. And let's be honest, that's like the lowest denominator of where we should get what God is like in those memes with the little sayings that are nice and quirky. See, God has specifically revealed himself in his word as to who he is. And in this short few verses, God really shows who he is. And as a friend of mine says, I like to use the word tension to describe theological nuances, the tension that is there between that God is good and he's compassionate and is loving, 
but he is also holy, he judges. Because he's both, it's not either or. Jesus isn't just my homeboy. He's also the holy God who does judge. And Nam comes out and he kind of really lays it out for us really clear, nice and clear. So this is a poem that you are reading, that we read here today. And Nam describes a lot of who, who God is. And this is a relationship that is going on between Nineveh and Judah. And God, in these first few verses, in verses 2 to 8, God's character really begins to come through. These verses can be a bit hard to swallow, though, because you look at that, right? The first verses that open up, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. I get the point. When was the last time you viewed God as avenging and vengeful and wrathful? Because that's how he's being revealed right here, right now. This is who he is. How can God be jealous and vengeful and wrathful? But God, God says he's love. How could that possibly be true? Yet we are opposed with that right here. But those are the words that are described in these few verses. And God shows even more about who he is. See, three times in, this few, in these two verses right here, it says, the Lord three times. Three times we are reminded of this, that God is a covenant God, that he keeps his promises. See, even in this few verses of talking about God's wrath and his vengeance and his uh, avengingness, his jealousy, we're we're reminded that God is a God who keeps his promises. That what God said will happen. And we're reminded of that last week when we started looking at Nahum. Nineveh, after this, gets wiped off of the planet. He does what he says that he will do. No longer to be thought of until the 1800s. Until we learned how to dig for stuff. The Lord. The Lord being used over and over again. I looked at these verses and I was reminded in my personal time, I've just finished reading through Joshua and Joshua 21, 45 45 says this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Folks, how do I remember the goodness of my God if I don't spend time in his word being reminded about what he has done. There are many more promises that he has promised will happen. How do I know that they will happen? He's already done so much more. The Messiah that God promised, the one who would save us from our sin, who would make us right before God, came through Jesus Christ. For those of us who repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for my sins, have hope that can never be taken away. I need to be reminded of these promises. Our God is a covenant-keeping promise. I need to be reminded daily. And don't come to me telling me that you don't either. That's a lie. You need to be reminded daily of how good our God is. You have to have a proper understanding of who he is and how he has revealed himself in his word. Our God is a promise-keeping God, but he is also a jealous God. Don't mistake that. 
God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Nor should he have to. Nor does he deserve to. He is the God creator of the universe and every knee will bow. He is a jealous God and his glory will not be shared. Ever. When we look at this, we see a God's who is passionate, his passionate reaction against any infringement on his holiness or any attempt to share his glory. His jealousy demands an undivided loyalty. And it comes out in his wrath against rejection of him and his lordship. This is God's reaction to sin. This is God's reaction, more specifically in this text, to a serious sin. They had put their trust in their own might. They had rejected God's lordship. Now God comes to judge their sin. And let us not forget that God, in his mercy, in his grace, gave them the message of hope. And they did repent for a bit. Remember Jonah. God comes and he sends this man who really did not want to go. To go preach was probably the worst sermon ever. And God uses that glorious news to cause the city of Nineveh to repent. But it was short-lived. They began to, again, put their hope in their military might. They rejected God's lordship over their lives. And now God comes and he will judge because he is a jealous God. He's also avenging And as a God, he is true to his nature. He is the universal judge that leaves no sin unpunished. Let me ask you this. Do we not like fairness? We love it. Like, you start that at a young age. Mom, that wasn't fair. Dad, that's not fair. You know what my response is to my kids now? Nothing's fair. And it gives me a great segue into talking about the gospel. Because the gospel is not fair. The fact that you can stand before a holy God when you are a sinful person is the perfect picture of not fair. The cross is the perfect picture of not fair. Thank God that he's not fair. He's just. He's perfect. He's fair. And that's why he's an avenging God. Three times he repeats this avenging or vengeful. And, 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 it, and it emphasizes the, the inescapability of the things that are about to happen here. You can't escape it. It will happen. At one time, you will die. You will face God. The question is, will you face God on your own merit or on the merit of Jesus Christ? And then he comes out and he says, who is this going to be dished out to? To those who oppose God's sovereign reign over the whole earth. For some reason, we really struggle with this idea that God is sovereign. And I think we struggle with it the most because we really want to hold on to things ourselves. That we're more worried about my will being done than God's will will be done. When we pray that prayer, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's not a request. That's an admission that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And Assyria had not done this. And you come and think, wait, hold on. I think God is sovereign. Good for you. I do too. But if I'm honest with myself, my actions often don't prove that. So let me ask you these things. How is God being sovereign? How is he reigning over your finances? The most taboo subject in Canada. Politics, religion, and money. How is he sovereign over that? How about your parenting? How about when he tells you to go tell the good news of Jesus Christ? To the lost, to the broken, to the weary, to the sinner. How about your entertainment choices? I've been really struggling with this for some reason. Because I love Netflix. Like, if I could have the socks that, like, you know the socks that if they don't move, it turns off Netflix? That would be great. But I was talking to someone about this, about Netflix and other entertainment out there. It could be TV, it could be anything. And the question that I was coming up with myself is, what trumps my entertainment or the holiness of God? And I'll be, I'll be honest, most of the time it's my entertainment. How does the sovereignty of God look like that in your life? For Nineveh, it was their military might. For us, it could be anything. But we all struggle with it. You look at these characteristics of God, and yes, Nineveh is guilty. They have no argument against God, but this doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop here for a second and kind of contemplate things a little bit. We need to see that Nahum's words apply to us and our sins too. Just go to Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, to see that it applies to us too. In Romans 3, 10 to 11, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one stands, no one seeks God. Do you doubt his power to do what he says? Well, he can go even further on, and we can talk about uh, Bashan and Carmel. They will wither, the bloom of Lebanon will wither. The importance of this is that these, two, these three places were lush places, and God, in his sovereignty and his control of creation, makes the most lush farmland ever wither to nothing. God will accomplish his things. But then we see this wonderful thing here that we can't forget in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in love and great in power. God had already sent a messenger to Nineveh. He has made it possible for them to know God. In short time, they turned from their sin and they put their trust in Him, but that didn't last. The Lord is slow to anger, but He will by no means clear the guilty. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, as another version says. Nineveh had turned from the true God, so have we. Their tongues tell lies, so have ours. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, Ours are, are they any more pure? They were swift to shed blood. Is our society not equally guilty of that? Abortion seems to be a good reason for that right now. 
I am sure we can also see that there is no fear of God even in some of our own eyes. See, God's wrath is poured out against those who are guilty. And the Lord by no means clears the guilty because he's a just God. We want a just God. We want revenge. So in verse 6, it says this, How can anyone stand before his indignation? The answer is that no one, not the greatest empire on earth, and not you and not me. Paul says in Romans 3.23, right? We, many of us know this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, because I like the but statements. They're important. Don't forget them. Because again, our perspective of who God is has to be judged by how God has revealed himself in his word, not how I feel. Because there is a bus statement here. In verse 7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in day of trouble. In his book, Evangelism as Exiles, I've just been reading this this week. I cannot encourage you to read a better book right now. Evangelism in Exiles, as Exiles. Elliot Clark says this, The Christian hope is that God's purposes are so unassailable that a great storm of events can't drive them off course. Even when we were wave-tossed and lost at sea, Jesus remains the captain of the ship and the commander of the storm. God is good. He is our shelter in times of trouble. He is either our stronghold or he's our greatest enemy. God can be your stronghold because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you and to me. Because there's Romans 3.24 and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The good news is this. Christ died for our sins. No one stands before God and has a claim to innocence. No one. Not one. But the good news is this, is that Christ died for our sins, for my sins, for your sins, so that we can have a relationship with the Holy God. Not one of us is guiltless. We've all created, all committed treason against the Holy God Who amongst us has not ignored or even denied God's glory? So the only legitimate thing that we can do is to immediately and absolutely submit ourselves to the very God that we have sinned against. That is so important. Don't miss this. Don't walk out of this room without understanding this. It is only through Jesus Christ that you can come before a holy God. You reject Jesus, you reject God. No option. Because if you don't believe this, you are exposed to the full wrath of God that Nahum is showing us here. God has punished the sins of all those who trust in him. Amazingly, through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and he rose again, that's what we see on the cross. The cross is his perfect picture of God's vengeance, his jealousy, his love. It's the only time they're reconciled. 
all of humanity is divided into two groups of judge, that judgment is coming. Those who take refuge in God in verse 7 and those who continue as his enemies despite the warning that Nahum offers of coming judgment. God graciously offers you and me deliverance so that we can escape his justice by looking to him for refuge. Any other way will fail. Don't forget verse 8. Don't come to this and just say, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Amen. Praise God. Don't forget verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. God's goodness comes in salvation. This is ultimately shown in Jesus so that we can hope to future salvation from every aspect of this fallen life. God is our refuge, who in Jesus Christ bids us come to him and rest. Rest. God's kingdom has come in Jesus as he saves his people and overthrows his and our enemies so that there is an end to bondage and fear. Don't forget to take note of God's kindness and his severity. As the God who can take refuge in, God shows kindness to his people and he will deliver them. And we see this as God pours out his care for his people. The care of God in verses 9 to 15 comes true. We see an interaction of Assyria and Judah. So verses 9 to 11, is, uh, God is talking to Assyria and he, he begins to pour out his wrath, his condemnation on them. What do you plot against the Lord? This is the thing. The king of Assyria had come around and he had conquered like 40 cities, 440, 40 fortified cities in Judah. Judah's at the end of the road. The only place that was left was Jerusalem. And the king had the audacity to say this, your God cannot save even Jerusalem. You know what God's response is? Yeah, right. <laughs> what do you plot against the Lord? What are your schemes? What are your thoughts? How can you, uh, how could you undermine the sovereignty of God? You can't. And God proves it later in history. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Like I'm reading this going, oh man, the hammer is going to be dropped. And that's how God responds. In verse 12, he comes along and says this to to Jerusalem, to Judah. He says, thus says the Lord, though they are full strength, even though Assyria is at the, the heights of their might, their military might, even though they are there, many will, they will be cut down and pass away. Nobody is stronger than our God. And Nahum calls us to rest in the God who is sovereign over history. And then he comes along and says, though I have afflicted you, even though what is happening to you right now is what I have willed, because you've you've disobeyed me, you people of God have wandered from God, and I told you that I would punish you for that. 
and that's exactly what is happening, I will put an end to this. I will stop this. Even though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. The response to what God will do comes alive, though, in verse 15. And, you know, I struggle with this a lot because we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? I pray this often. Especially in, in agony, right? You're, you're just confused. You're in pain. You're, you're suffering. You're, you're frustrated. You're just, yeah. That's a word, right? Yeah. I don't know how you would write it, but... Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And God, in verse 15, as he just reminds Judah that he's going to wipe them out, like, no more shall your name be propitiated. Like, it's God. Like, when God says you'll become as dust, you become as dust. In the house of your gods, the people that you put your rest in, the people that you put your trust in, I will cause your demise. You think you're safe? You're not. I am the sovereign God. I am the holy God. And God encourages a specific response to a serious destruction. And this is weird. So these few verses tell Judah to celebrate God as the one who brings peace through the destruction of their worst enemies. Now figure that one out, right? It is a partial but concrete fulfillment of God's promises in verses 2 to 8, to deliver fully those who trust in him while completely destroying evil. It's a faint shadow of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. We see the promises being fulfilled in Jesus as he exercised dominion over demons. We'll just do that one. Demons in Mark 1. He renders Satan powerless through his atoning death. We see that in Hebrews 1 or Hebrews 2. We still wait for Jesus' final victory over all of his enemies, right? We're still in this land of in-between, the yet but not yet. We're still suffering. But we still have a hope. We see that in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. And Satan being bound by chains with his fellow rebels against God in the lake of fire and sulfur forever. In Revelation 20. But we see in Revelation 19, 1 to 3, that this righteous judgment causes the praise of the saints. Why? Because of those who have repented and believed are now fully delivered and have eternal fellowship with the triune God. Oh, man. Do you see how good this is? Do you, like, this is hope. Like, life can suck really bad. Lack of a better word. But at the end of the day, Jesus wins. My hope is in him. 
But just like Judah had to wait until then, the church's response, our response, us as Knollwood's response to this hope is to live in obedient faith as we continue to pray the prayer that closes Scripture itself in Revelation 20, verse 10. Come, Lord Jesus. For those who find refuge in God, there is always hope. For those who reject God's lordship, there is only wrath waiting for them. So let me ask you this, so what? What is God like? What is he like? God is slow to anger, but judges the guilty. He avenges the oppressed and comforts the powerless. Don't forget Nahum 1, 7 and 8. The Lord is good. Oh, he's so good. And strong, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I love that part. He knows you who take refuge in him. You're not some number. He knows you. These verses show the character of God. Because it also says in verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The character of God is shining through. So the question that is here is, who are you resting in this day? All of humanity is divided into two groups. Those who seek refuge in God and those who continue as his enemies despite the warning of coming judgment. God graciously offers you and me deliverance so that we can escape his justice by looking to him for refuge. Any other way will fail. Don't forget verse 8. The unprotected sinner will be exposed to God's wrath. So here's the question. How can we escape this wrath? We can't. It's impossible for us to do it unless we run to Christ. We must repent of our sin and believe the gospel. And what is the gospel? Christ died for our sins. And he rose again. And he ascended. And he will one day come back. And how do I know he will one day come back? Because Nineveh no longer exists. God keeps his promises. He will come back. God is slow to anger but judges the guilty. He avenges the oppressed and comforts the powerless. Let us continue to praise and worship this awesome God that we have.